I'm Grant Haver. I'm Zoe Weinberg. And this is Next in Foreign Policy, the podcast where the next generation of national security and foreign policy leaders talk about the issues of today and tomorrow. This week, we're joined by Amy Slipowitz, Research Manager for Freedom in the World at Freedom House. Amy, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. Really happy to be here. So how did you get into foreign policy and what ultimately led you to Freedom House? Yeah, it's a pretty circuitous path. I had studied economics in undergrad and thought I might want to go into finance or investment management, but I had a couple of internships in foreign policy and democracy and human rights. So at the back of my mind, I thought, oh, this is something I might potentially be interested in doing as a career. I worked at a hedge fund after college and quickly realized this wasn't what I wanted to do long term. And kind of the most interesting thing that happened was we had a request from one of our investors asking how much coverage our funds had on Iran. So I thought, oh, that's really interesting. It must be because of the sanctions and they have to check that they are complying with various sanctions. So I thought, okay, if this is like the most interesting thing to happen, maybe I should switch career paths. So I applied to graduate school in international relations. And I got an internship at Freedom House my last semester of my master's. And that kind of exposed me to the research there and made me want to do more at the organization. What was it about Iran sanctions that sort of piqued your interest, you know, in foreign policy? And and then eventually, how did that evolve into your interest in freedom and democracy specifically? Yeah, I think the thing that kind of piqued my interest was how different democratic countries might respond to more authoritarian regimes and what the different tools might be that can kind of try to deter anti-democratic behavior or really egregious abuses of people's rights and also practice of corruption and kleptocracy and things like that. And I had also done as my undergrad thesis in economics, a paper on the link between democracy and economic growth. Uh, So that was actually where I first learned about Freedom House's Freedom in the World publication and how you might classify a country as a democracy or not. So that kind of intersection between economics and democracy or lack of democracy was always something that made me interested. So the Freedom in the World Report is really, really widely read and circulated. I have been reading it, you know, for many years, and it sort of feels like it's the authority on um, sort of tracking the progression of democracies worldwide. But for people who aren't familiar with the Freedom in the World Report, can you tell us a little bit about what that report is, what it's trying to do, and maybe as part of that, what freedom means in that context? Freedom in the World is assessing political rights and civil liberties, and we do this in 210 countries and territories every year. So this year's edition, Freedom in the World 2022, covers events that happened in calendar year 2021. And we've been producing this report for almost 50 years now. What we are doing is evaluating the state of freedom as experienced by people within specific country or territorial borders. So we're not rating government performance, which is often a common misperception. 
What we are really focusing on are the real world rights and freedoms as experienced by individuals. And so this is regardless of whether the impact is coming from state or non-state actors. And we assess countries by assigning scores on a 100-point scale across 25 different indicators. And based on that, we divide countries into free, partly free, or not free status. And this 25-indicator methodology is really how we define freedom and democracy, and we use those terms interchangeably. But we're not just looking at elections as signifying that a country is democratic. A democracy is about so much more than that, including different civil liberties like media freedom, freedom of expression, rule of law, effective anti-corruption measures. It just runs the gamut. So it's really a kind of liberal democracy that freedom in the world is assessing for each country. So it's funny that you say you guys use democracy and freedom interchangeably, and I know you kind of muddied that towards the end because this week saw some not fun things happening in the illiberal democracies. Orban won a resounding victory in Hungary and India in the last month, the prime minister's party has won another election in the States. How do you think about this kind of tide shift? within democracies of, you know, maybe the institutions remain, but they're getting more and more authoritarian within those because that's what the people keep voting for. Yeah, there's been a real sort of co-optation of democratic institutions. And this has happened, of course, within autocratic regimes, but also in democracies that were previously very free, like, as you mentioned, India, Hungary, United States and many other countries. And there are these political actors and other illiberal leaders who are working to undermine these institutions and keep themselves in power. So it can take a lot of different forms, but I think one that's probably on the top of everyone's mind these days is electoral process. So the most striking example last year arguably happened on January 6th in the United States. But in Brazil, we're seeing President Bolsonaro laying the groundwork in advance of his possible re-election in October. So in case he doesn't like the results, he can choose to claim fraud. He's already been casting doubt on the electronic voting machines that will be used. Uh, Rule of law is another pillar of democracy that's under threat. Poland is a prime example. The Governing Law and Justice Party has really doggedly manipulated and circumvented the law over the past few years to assert control over the judiciary. Another is media freedom. And another one that I would highlight is this kind of growing majoritarianism. So we've seen this in India where laws and policies seen as discriminatory to the country's Muslim population have been passed and they're meant to kind of bolster the majority that voted for the BJP government. So there's this kind of view that elected leaders are not meant to represent everyone. They're meant to represent their base or their supporters. And that has been a key factor of why a lot of democracies have been hollowed out over the last few years. Globally, the percent of people who are living in in sort of free environments has, has steeply, steeply plummeted. Is there 
any sort of single common driver there? Or is it is it sort of a range of idiosyncratic factors in each particular country? Or what are the sort of like larger global trends or shifts that could be driving this? To put it into context, Freedom in the World has documented 16 consecutive years of decline in global democracy. So this has been going on for a pretty long time. And I would kind of classify it as this, as there are two main drivers. One, I already touched upon the kind of weakening of democracies themselves by internal forces. Another is the rise of autocratic powers, not just within their own countries, but along the international system. So you're seeing regimes like the Kremlin or the Chinese Communist Party really trying to shape the international system to their own interests, whether that's promoting the idea of self-sovereignty, making sure that any abuses they perpetrate, they aren't held accountable for. And that's kind of emboldening leaders in other countries to be able to say, okay, well, I can suppress a population. I can bend different institutions to stay in power. And they're also seeing, of course, these democracies that are weakening. And when democracies are weakening internally, it's a lot more difficult to say, you should be holding free and fair elections. You shouldn't be imprisoning the opposition or journalists. So I think those kind of two strands have been kind of the two main phenomenons over the last 16 years. How do you work to make sure you're not comparing apples to oranges, you know, comparing North Korea and South Sudan to very different governments, to very different locations? How do you work to make sure that you're really doing this rigorously? So as I mentioned, we have 25 indicators, and each indicator is assessed on a scale from zero to four, where zero would be the least degree of freedom and four would be the greatest degree of freedom. Every year, we take as a baseline the previous year's scores for each country, and we look at the developments that happened during the coverage period. So let's say this is a very kind of obvious example. But let's say there was a really big crackdown on peaceful protest where security forces injured people and there were a lot of arrests. If this hadn't happened in the past, that would be a pretty clear decline in our freedom of assembly indicator. And it might go back up the next year if nothing like that happens during the next coverage period. And how we find out these developments and assess them is we have external consultants who are country experts. They're based in the country or from the country or have a lot of familiarity with it in the event that it's too dangerous to work with someone in a very closed society. And they're the ones who are following these developments and proposing whether a score should change or not and updating these country narratives that we have that explain why a country scores the way it does in each indicator. And to vet all of these proposals, we hold a series of regional meetings where we gather the country experts, Freedom House staff, and also a panel of usually academic advisors who have that kind of regional comparative perspective that they bring. So we talk through each country one by one, and always at the forefront of our minds are um, 
whether the, the change across time is sufficient enough to create a new score change and whether across the region the score makes sense. So we would look into things like what were the conditions like for media freedom in this country five years ago? Are they similar? And does the score still make sense where it is? Or should it be lower or higher based on how things may have changed? Sometimes, of course, it's more obvious, like my freedom of assembly example, if there was a really bad election, and the conditions were so much worse than the last election, that would be kind of an automatic decline. Looking from a time series perspective, but if we look at a regional comparison, we want to make sure it's bad enough to fit in with the other countries in the region or even globally that have a lower score and make sure the environment is similar. And of course, you can't compare countries directly in a lot of cases. Often the context is very different, and there are different reasons for why a country is the way it is. So um, that's why we that's why we don't have any like guidelines on a four should look like this or a one should look like this. So we do a lot of different comparisons, basically. The other thing we're always keeping in mind is what is the impact of actual people on the ground. So if a law was passed that would restrict media freedom, for example, We would want to see how the law is being implemented and how it's affecting journalists' ability to report or media outlets' ability to operate. So we would wait to see what the implementation looks like and whether that law is enforced or not. We might also look if the law hasn't been implemented, there might be a chilling effect that's been created just by the nature of the law being passed. So these are some of the things that we're looking out for when we're determining whether scores should be changed or not. So it seems like, from what you're saying, that you really, it's both like specifically that country, and but then also thinking about it in the context of the region, how do you avoid issues where you think the U.S. is getting worse because like the U.S. is getting worse in a lot of ways, but like comparatively, the U.S. is still like a stellar democracy where freedom is pretty still strong despite our slide. I think the U.S. is a really good example, because when it's your own country, there might be this tendency to say, oh, we should decline everything or, oh, we should improve everything. And that's why we have these external consultants and a panel of advisors who can remind us of that comparative perspective. We also have within Freedom House, I call them the methodology gurus who are making sure we're always abiding by our methodology and not letting any emotions or subjectivity come into the process. So we have a lot of different layers um, to make sure that our assessments are objective and that we're ultimately doing a global comparative exercise, which is what freedom in the world is. So with the U.S., we would look to other countries, whether in Western Europe or more Recently, non-Western European countries, maybe countries like Brazil or India, see how the U.S. compares to those. So it's this kind of constant comparison, both across time and across regions. Stepping back a little bit, I hope this isn't too meta, but I'm curious what you feel the, the, the sort of overarching purpose of an index or ranking on freedom really is. 
is part of it about the empirical research and being able to, you know, sort of track some of these factors over time for academic and research purposes? Or is it partly to, to sort of draw the public's attention to, you know, some of the global regions of concern or to help direct resources to certain countries that may be experiencing democratic decline? In your mind, what is the, what, what is the sort of ultimate objective of, of doing an index? I don't think there's one single objective that Freedom in the World has. It can be a great resource for academic study and other research purposes. And I think a lot of people first come across Freedom in the World in a political science class or somewhere like that. But I think another way it can be a resource is by identifying countries that are at what I would call a critical juncture. So countries that are kind of hovering on the edge between maybe free or partly free or partly free and not free and seeing and alerting policymakers or other stakeholders to which countries might need support most critically to make sure there isn't any further backsliding or that incremental gains can keep growing. So I think in in that way, it can be a very useful tool for making different policy decisions. If you look at the Millennium Challenge Corporation, which awards foreign assistance to countries that meet certain thresholds in governance and other indicators, they use Freedom in the World scores as one indicator on their own scorecard. So that's one way you can see the kind of tangible effects that our assessments have. And it made for a great data set for one George Mason University master's student in political science in 2016, trying desperately to write his thesis. Yeah, I, I used it for my undergrad thesis. So I think a lot of people have that experience. One of the areas that you you called out in the report is the sort of rise of digital authoritarianism and the use of technology to suppress how do you think about that as a as a force for ill, but also how technology might be used to move from that partly free to free? I think technology, like many other tools, is a double-edged sword. So you can use it for really good things and great activism and getting changes to happen. But you can also use it to suppress people and to limit people's activism and, and the information they can access. So technology is a particularly powerful force over the last decade or more. I think when the Arab Spring happened, a lot of people were very optimistic that technology could really change countries and make them democratic and kind of usher in this sea change, but we're seeing now that a lot of authoritarian leaders have been able to co-opt various tools, whether it's using internet shutdowns to make sure people don't come out for large anti-government protests or censoring the type of information that people might be able to access online or arresting people who post a critical tweet. There are a lot of innovative ways that technology has been used to undermine democracy. And Freedom House has a great annual report called Freedom on the Net 
that I would encourage you to check out. It comes out every year and it looks at different internet freedom trends so that that provides a way more in-depth look at how technology is affecting democracy. Earlier, you mentioned some of the different specific factors that your consultants or researchers will track in specific countries, like the sort of, you know, openness of the media and and so forth. Have there been digital uh, factors that have been added to that equation, things like internet shutdowns or or surveillance or censorship um, using digital tools? Yeah, it comes up in different areas of the methodology, depending on how these tools are used. One of the most prominent examples, we have a specific indicator on private discussion. So we look at whether ordinary people are free to talk about sensitive or taboo subjects, whether offline or online. So that's where surveillance can come into play if people are being detained or charged for social media posts that, let's say, criticize the government, or if there's this surveillance law that's passed that might deter people from talking about sensitive subjects. Another area might be the freedom of assembly indicator. I mentioned that sometimes governments can use internet shutdowns or throttling or other connectivity restrictions as a way to deter protests or during an election or other politically sensitive times. So it might come out through that as well. And also, yeah, and another example would be media freedom. So if there isn't access to online outlets and there aren't any other alternatives of more traditional media, that might result in a lower score for the media freedom indicator. When when Iran had those massive protests, I think it was in, tw- in 2019, and there was connectivity restrictions that impacted some of its scores in things like media freedom and government transparency and so on. So we've talked a lot about decline, the tools that it's being used against democracy and against freedom. I need some hope. What what hope do you have in, in, in the report? Is there anything that I can at least hang my hat on to say somewhere in the world it is getting better? I'm always looking out for signs of hope. And I think the most prominent is people are really risking their lives in the most repressive of places in the name of democracy and their rights. We're seeing this happen in Myanmar and Sudan, people demanding freedom despite military coups and significant crackdowns on those resisting. And of course, now we're seeing this in Ukraine where people are fighting for their freedom. And I think this demand for democracy is going to continue because people have inherent desire to live freely. And the best system that can respect people's rights and protect them is a democratic system. So I think democracy will continue to be in high demand, even if it sometimes feels like there's disillusionment with it. I can also talk about some of the bright spots of the year. Ecuador improved from partly free to free because of very steady gains in things like judicial independence and other areas. Niger resisted a coup attempt and 
made some gains with a good election. So places like these give us hope that the democratic decline can still be reversed. So what can countries do from an external perspective to assist people fighting for democracy and human rights in in partly free or not free countries without just then calling on those countries to label the activists as foreign agents who are, you know, backed by the U.S. and our, our boogeymen? Unfortunately, no silver bullet, but there are a variety of ways to nurture democracy globally and to counter authoritarianism. This includes perhaps obvious things like supporting civil society and grassroots movements that are calling for democracy, supporting free and independent media. And one way to counter authoritarianism that I think is really key is prioritizing the fight against kleptocracy and international corruption, this kind of current system that we have, which a lot of democracies have been complicit in, has really enabled authoritarian regimes such as Putin's to enrich themselves and be able to wield their power. Um, so that's a major, a major issue that I think democracies need to address multilaterally. And also important is to strengthen democracy at home. So not just looking to countries that are partly free or not free, but also looking within our own countries and identifying the weaknesses and how how those can be addressed and strengthened. Because I think I said this before, but for a foreign policy that's oriented in democracy and human rights, you need to also be working on that at home. Otherwise, you don't have any credibility. How do you think public opinion in the United States is shifting when it comes to the topic of democracy? It feels to me like probably over the last decade, we have sort of taken democracy for granted at home. And in the last couple of years, have started realizing that actually democracy is really fragile, including within our own borders. Do you feel like you see that as well? Yeah, I think there has been a better kind of reckoning of structural weaknesses within U.S. democracy, including, you know, political polarization, unequal treatment, and a lot of other issues, of course. But what's been interesting to me is how the definition of democracy can vary among different groups. So Freedom House has its definition of democracy, which we think is the correct version, where people's rights are respected and protected, but you have other groups justifying anti-democratic or illiberal actions in the name of their version of democracy. So I think there's mis- there's a misunderstanding of what democracy actually means. And you also see this internationally where China and Russia called themselves democracies. So the term has really been co-opted and is used to justify many illiberal actions, both internally and externally. One thing that Joe Biden brought up during the democracy summit, which happened last year, was that democracies are supposed to deliver for people. So how do you think, as someone who studies day-to-day the kind of democratic trends and human rights, about that democracy's delivering piece whether it's, you know, as an input to whether democracies work or as an output to like what good democracy can do. Yeah, I think democracies have really 
been failing to deliver on the benefits of the system. And that is making people think that there might be better options. And a big part of that is kind of the Chinas of the world where they have this enormous power that's really grown and a lot of resources to be able to promote their own system, which isn't based on a unifying ideology or any affinity among authoritarians, but again, to stay in power, to escape any accountability, to do what they want. And previously, you may have seen developing countries or transitioning countries feel the pressure to implement democratic reforms to gain support from the wider international community. But today they have options of things like economic support through, let's say, the Belt and Road Initiative or political support at multilateral forums like the UN and so on. So there's this increasingly viable alternative to democracy that has emerged in recent years. I want to hear more about what it's like to be the research manager on this report. Are you hurting a bunch of cats when it comes to getting all of the uh, folks who are contributing inputs to get those in on time? What are, what are you focused on? What, what does it mean to research manage the report? Yeah, it's kind of a twofold job. So there's a huge coordination aspect and just making sure that everyone is submitting their deliverables and things are proceeding so we can talk about each country and make decisions on its scores. And luckily, I have a really great team at Freedom House who are managing one or sometimes two regions and making sure our external consultants have what they need and can help them and support them in that regard. And the other aspect is just following what's happening around the world. And I get a lot of really interesting information from the series of meetings that I was talking about earlier. That's where we can really see the different trends of the year that we might want to delve into further and try to understand what it all means for democracy globally and what might be done to reverse this decline that doesn't seem to be reversing. It's a very interesting job. And I like that some of it is kind of more intellectual thinking, research and analysis, but I can have a break from that also with kind of like project management and putting my kind of more organizational hat on if I need a break and vice versa. What is one of those trends or developments when it comes to democracy research where you think they're is a lot more work to be done. Natural disasters and climate change and health crises is a really interesting area that I personally find fascinating. I started thinking about it after the pandemic started and was trying to figure out, okay, how are we going to assess these countries according to our methodology when so many countries are putting restrictions on freedom of movement or assembly, which are some of the indicators that we assess? But then it, I started thinking more about kind of the long-term implications of the pandemic and how it might be used to pass restrictive laws or be used an ex, as an excuse to crack down on dissent. And I think this framework can apply to a lot of other 
things that are not directly related to governance, like climate change and just other kind of, I don't know if they're externalities necessarily, but things that you wouldn't necessarily expect to be connected to a government and policymaking. So with that, let's turn to our final segment where we each talk about something we've been following in the news, either politically or culturally. Zoe, why don't you kick us off? I actually want to talk about a book that I finished recently that came out a little while ago, so I might be a little bit late on the uptake there. But it's a book that's called 4,000 Weeks Time Management for Mortals by Oliver Berkman. And I would call it the anti-productivity productivity book. The author uh, wrote a column, I believe, for many years about productivity and optimizing your time and being more efficient and so forth, and essentially discovered that most techniques that people use to try to make themselves more productive ultimately make you less happy. And so the way to really think about time management is to think about it in terms of the most meaningful ways that you could actually spend you know, a day or a week or a month and allow some of the things on the to-do list or in the inbox to slip a little bit. And I, I sort of feel like the millennial in the, in the 21st century who herself has tried, it feels like all, you know, many apps and methods uh, of productivity and time optimization. Uh, it was a very welcome and refreshing take on the subject. I'd highly recommend it. I will have to look into that. Amy, what are you following this week? I have two things. One are the protests in Sri Lanka that are happening now. Yesterday, the entire cabinet, except for the president and prime minister, resigned. So I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens because I've been pretty concerned with the Rajapaksa's consolidation of power and what is going to happen in terms of Sri Lanka's democratic trajectory. But the other thing, it's not really news. I I remember um, when I was little, my parents would banish me and my brother into another part of the house so they could watch whatever new episode of Seinfeld was on, undisturbed. So I realized I haven't seen many of the episodes. So I started watching it on Netflix, which now has all the episodes. And it's just been very fun to see that portrayal of New York and friends who don't really talk about anything in particular. So for for my thing that I've been following, the war in Ukraine is continuing unabated this week with human rights violations being revealed as Russia retreated from Bukha. However, in a recent sermon, instead of lambasting his government for failing to love their neighbors as themselves, Russian Orthodox Patriarch Kirill continued to proclaim his support for the war. The Russian Orthodox Church is incredibly powerful in Russia, with adherents accounting for more than 70% of the entire population. Of course, religion and Christianity specifically have been used for generations to perpetuate bad policy that goes directly against the core tenets of the faiths. However, I don't hear enough Christians in the U.S. and abroad denouncing Kirill, so I'd like to make it clear that as a Christian, I find his views repugnant and antithetical to our shared faith. I hope that the World Council of Churches and other ecumenical groups speak out more forcefully on this issue as well. With that, thanks for joining us. Next in Foreign Policy is produced in cooperation with Foreign Policy for America's Next Gen Initiative and is a proud member of the DSR Network. 
Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. You can follow me online at Grant Haver, follow Zoe at Z Weinberg, and follow Amy at Amy underscore Slick. If you are a foreign policy expert under 40 and want to be featured on the show, be sure to follow the link in the show notes. This week's episode is brought to you by Meta. We are really sorry that you found out that our algorithm was feeding you content that made you angry. We'll make sure to do it more covertly moving forward. Join us in two weeks to hear more about what's next in foreign policy. Oh, 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 o